You're listening to Elk Point Baptist Church. Subscribe to our podcast to hear every sermon and like us on Facebook by searching Elk Point Baptist Church, located in Elk Point, South Dakota. Embrace the liberating truth that is not it is not through our works, but through the faith in Christ that we find true redemption. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So our goal in this lesson is to help us walk away from the burdensome path of self-reliance and toward the restful assurance found in God's grace. Ezekiel 13, 10, which is the main verse for today, says, They have seduced my people, saying, Peace, and there was no peace. So there's a promise from the world, but that promise isn't fulfilling. Um, so I did want to watch the short video today. Uh, Carrie does open up this chapter and the next lesson uh, with a brief video. So let's go ahead and watch that. Hey class, welcome to week three of our study of the book, Stop Trying. We are really still in part one of this book, and part one is all about losing. So the book breaks down into these three parts, losing, finding, and flourishing. And it's all built on Jesus' invitation that whosoever would lose, uh, whosoever would save his life would lose it, but whosoever would lose his life for Jesus and for the gospel, the same will find it. And Jesus promised that he was come to give life and to give it more abundantly. And so we're still really in the early stages of understanding the concept of identity, understanding the fragility of identity and how the world imposes on us its own categories and tries to make those categories fluid where some of the categories that God's given us are fixed dynamics and fixed values based on the creative design of the loving heart of God. And then the world is going to send us on this lifelong quest to find our true selves. And pretty much every self-help book, pretty much every business leadership book, uh, pretty much all of the Western world, the whole world is an identity-based world, but the Western world especially is built on these two narratives that we're going to unfold this week and next week. So today we're looking at chapters three and four. Chapter three unfolds the fragility, the inerrant fragility of the world's narratives, the world's identity narratives. We're going to see in the book three ways to construct an identity. Um, we're all constructing a sense of self. It's happening underneath the sur surface of our lives all day, every day, every waking moment. Our subconscious, our psyche, our soul, you could say, our heart, is maintaining. It's either pursuing to build or it is maintaining what's been built and trying to protect it from collapse. But here's the thing. Also subconsciously, there's this always this nagging sense of vulnerability. Not only the fact that we are human beings and so death is always one breath away, but we also inherently know we live we intuitively know we live in a fragile world. We intuitively know that bad things happen. Whether it's an earthquake or a financial collapse or a pandemic or a 
blizzard or the loss of a job or the downturn of the economy or the uh, cost of inflation, we inherently know that our lives are shaky. And so in that sense, they're kind of, in terms of our, our existential and material and physical existence, it's kind of a house of cards. Now, we don't like to think about that. So we drive the stakes of our security deep. We try to find the most secure decisions with the best outcomes. We try to insure ourselves to the hilt, and then we double insure ourselves. We make sure we've got good medical coverage. We, we try to eat healthy, live healthy, whatever. Whatever our solutions, we really work hard. And often, frenzied and frantically, we work to protect our sense of self and the life that secures our sense of self. One of the most intolerable, uh, painful, devastating things in all of life is the collapse of identity structures. Things I'm looking to, to anchor my psyche, my sense of being, my sense of acceptance, security, and significance. When that collapses, it's total despair, total hopelessness, total purposelessness, and really a struggle to find the will to live. And so we're going to see today uh, in these two chapters, first of all, the inerrant fragility of the world's identity narratives. And we're going to begin unfolding the first of those narratives, which we call traditional identity. Traditional identity is simply outward looking. Just remember these basic concepts as you unfold this with your teacher and as you read of yourself. It's outward looking. It's looking to others, some kind of others, other people of any kind, okay, and that can be lots of different relationships. It's looking outward to other people for validation. When it finds it, then it is strong or it feels strong. When it does not find it, it feels weak or devastated or rejected or lonely. So external validation, looking to others, so traditional identity essentially says others define me. Now, I don't want to get too far into this because I want you and your group to discover it for yourselves. But let's dive in and understand the inerrant fragility of the world's narratives and the first narrative that was really imposed on all of us from the cradle, from the day you were born. Now here's a little clue to where we're going. You were born with an identity. And immediately the world began to teach you you have to live up to creating an identity and you can be whoever you want to be. And yet there's a creator and designer, a designer who gave you an identity and a story that's been written into his. So we have a choice in this journey of life. Do we create our own identities or do we receive one that's already been created for us? Well, the world says there is no creator, so get about creating your own, and that is always a scary, frantic, frenzied, anxious, fearful journey. So blessings on your study today, and I'll see you for the next lesson. All right. Um, doesn't that sound like codependency to you? Codependency is basically you tying all of your happiness and, and your value and, you know, all of your confidence on another person. 
and the more codependent you are, like on a, on a random day, if they're angry, even if it's not about you at all, it feels like it's about you and then your day is just destroyed and you're doing everything you can to make that person happy and that's not your responsibility. And the world help, constantly feeds us this idea that like in, in a marriage, the husband and a wife complete each other. They are responsible for each other's happiness. They have to be codependent. Like that's just the picture that's painted in songs and in movies, this idea of we are now one with the idea that um, without each other, we can't stand, we can't survive. Well, the world helps us, or makes us believe in every realm of ourselves that we need to rely on, on what they say we should be doing. Like We're living up to this idea that the world has for us. We're living up to the standards of the world, and those aren't anything to stand on, and they're constantly changing, so how can we possibly stand, right? It's the picture of a house built on a rock or a house built on sand that's just going to wash away. It's non it's non-stable. So we're constantly shifting trying to recapture our balance or our significance or or whether we're okay or whether we're going to live up to the next, you know, job expectation or our, our friend group or whatever it is and we're crushed a, a lot. So uh, let's enter into a moment with Carrie Schmidt. He wrote and and I can kind of relate to this. Who who all's been to Disney World or Disneyland? Anybody? All right, so, so you can envision what he's writing here. I wanted to read this because I thought it was worth keeping. Um, Anticipation filled the cool night air. Dreamy music began as I savored my last bit of sugary deliciousness that we call cotton candy. Lights faded, the crowd waited eagerly. My wife and I stood motionless, arm in arm, in the middle of Main Street, USA. Suddenly, the world around us came alive with a series of beautiful explosions. Emotions peaked, adrenaline surged. Each burst accompanied perfectly synchronized music, animated scenes, and delighted gasps from nearby families. It was captivating and overwhelming to every sense. The scene repeated itself over and over with delightful force. Thunderous claps echoed, flash, boom, then darkness. We were mesmerized. Finally, a hypnotic calm fell over the crowd. Ethereal music played, a spotlight pierced the night and landed upon a shimmering green figure moving rapidly and erratically overhead. Green sequins, blonde hair, curly-toed shoes, a glowing wand, and nearby a child pointed up and exclaimed, Tinkerbell! The crowd exploded with wonder. Young children cheered. The music soared as euphoric singers declared, You can fly! You can fly! You can fly! Tinkerbell waved her wand and leapt off the ledge of Cinderella's castle, darting across the dark sky like a laser. The music climaxed and calmed again as a deep voice emanated from the speakers with a fatherly, happily ever after embrace. Grab a hold of your dreams and make them come true, for you are the key to unlocking your own magic. Now go, let your dreams guide you, reach out and find your happily ever after. It was all so dreamy. We were ready to go, make our dreams come true. It was beautiful and romantic. We hugged, we kissed. Then we tripped over the stroller next to us as park lights relit like a cup of cold water to the face. Tired, sugared out kids cried for their beds. Visitors on motorized scooters texting and driving nearly rolled us over. Disney employees with long flashlights barked, move to the right, please. The, the mass exodus for the park gate brought us instantly back to the crushing reality of life on planet Earth. It was a precious journey navigating tired crowds, sticky hands, helium balloons, plastic light-up swords, and traffic controllers. What happened to the happiness? Where did the magic go? What about my dreams? 
Truly, fantasy and reality have a nasty head-on collision nightly in that space. A few moments of escape come to a close with that elusive directive, grab a hold of your dreams and make them come true. Reach out and find your happily ever after in this dog-eat-dog survival of the fittest reality. We love it, but do we really believe it? The fireworks are fun, but there's something about these fictional narratives that can reach beyond fantasy. It's partly our heart's desire for something better and partly a culture saturated with fake messaging about how to discover better. But sometimes our fictional stories flow from and connect with our deeper search for our skewed perspectives on reality. Beyond the fiction, there truly are conflicting irrational beliefs as, and a resulting hopelessness in our world, which essentially says hope, but don't expect it to be real. We live in a world of incoherent and deeply frustrating fake or weak identity messages. It's really interesting when you think about that. There's this beautiful message and then all of a sudden it's, it's not beautiful anymore. And, and you're just trying to get home, you're trying to get the kids, you're just worrying about all these things again. And that's exactly how those moments are when we try to tie ourselves to an idea that has no foundation. We are, we're excited, we're emotional, we're connected with it, and all of a sudden it dissipates and we're back into this reality of, oh, it's not so great here. <laughs> and we're trying to like, okay, well, where'd it go? I'm trying to like, where do, I'm trying to hold on to you still, but I can't find you anymore. And, and it's just, it's a weak identity that we're tying to. So number one, it's not in your notes, but the, the first thing that we're going to look at is weak identity narratives. Now in the video he said it's chapters three and four, but Jesse's going to finish out chapter three, which, which is traditional identity, and chapter uh, five, which is the modern identity. So those two thoughts he will look at next week. So today we're looking at weak identity narratives. There is no shortage of identity messages being forced into our hearts. Today we will explore the messaging that is all around us, from academic institutions to pop culture, corporate America to the en entertainment industry, retail marketers to automobile manufacturers. We are surrounded with fake identity messages and flimsy promises. So the first one, the corporate world says that market success defines us. Market success defines us. Stephanie is a family friend, a Christian, a loving young wife and mom, a business leader, and an all-around optimistic and joyful person. She's solidly growing in good directions in every aspect of her life, but like all of us, she's navigating the tension between who she is, who she hopes to be, and who others say she should be. She rests, she's wrestling with where to anchor her deepest sense of self. Identity narratives are all around her and within her, resulting in those nagging, who am I really, or who am I now questions. So in studying these narratives with church family, she emailed her pastor expressing the real tension between her heart and her career pressures. How many people have been there? Like you have these aspirations and work, but then there's something still pulling at you, like is this really the direction I should be going? And, and you just have this sense of, it's not peace in that moment, like it's not. Like you, you feel like, okay, well I should be here, and sometimes you're in a job that God wants you in for a period of time, and that's a good thing, but you know, so it's a, a, a tension between the contentment of being there and striving for moving forward, and then whether or not that's even where you belong in the first place. It's this idea like, well, is this really, what I'm supposed to be doing. 
and then when you fail in that area, you don't know if that matters to you. But so like you're torn between the feeling of, of letting the people down in your business, letting your family down because you're not succeeding in your job, and, and the idea, well, maybe it's okay because you know, maybe this isn't what God really wants me to do. So you're, you're still grasping for what's real here. So here's how she described it. She wrote, Pastor, in recent months and years, I have discovered that my self-worth and identity are deeply tied to my success and failures. This past week, I have stepped down from being a sales director with a large company. She didn't write, or obvious, for obvious reasons, there's no name there. Uh, going from a very public leadership role back to being just a consultant. It is difficult for my ego and my heart. I am fighting the I'm an utter failure feeling. I am fighting the shame and embarrassment of not making it. I am fighting asking and answering the what's wrong with me question. I know in my heart that none of that matters, but knowing that in my heart and living that in my actions and daily thoughts is incredibly difficult at times, especially this week. So in Stephanie's case, it's not a fictional narrative, but rather the corporate narrative attempting to define her by material successes or titles. So everything was tied in how well she did. And now that she took a step down, it feels like she has taken a step down in her value. Externals are forcing their way into her psyche, demanding that she tie her sense of self to temporary things like commissions and sales numbers. It could just as easily be a more traditional narrative defining her by material status, motherhood, or household responsibilities. Neither the corporate nor the family role is bad, but neither one is entirely who she actually is. I am not a logistics person in a corporate office. I mean, I am, but that's not who I am. That's just what I do. Neither provides a durable identity, and the pressure struggles are very real for all of us. We want so bad to be significant. I mean, we, we look at the apostles wanting to know who is the greatest of the apostles because they want a status in the kingdom and, and with, with Jesus. And, and we all want that too. Like we want, in the church, we want to know that we're doing something significant. And sometimes we tie ourselves to whether we did good and then nobody shows up and now our self-worth is tanked because... Well, maybe nobody wants to be here with me, or, or maybe I said something wrong, or, and it really has nothing to do with that if we have our perspective correct here. So we can't tie ourselves to any one of those outside identifiers or successes or failures. I mean, it stinks to lose sometimes, but our self-worth can't be tied to that. If we were tied to that all the time, we'd sink and then rise and then sink and then rise all the time. And, but if, we're, if our self-worth is in Jesus Christ and who he says we are, which we'll look at in the next two lessons a little bit more, then we're steady the whole time, whether the waves go up and down, whether the, the mountain crumbles, whether something you know, is, is loose underneath us, we're still standing on a firm foundation that Jesus says we are his and and we're loved and we're conquerors and we're we're worth something he died and paid a price for us and that means we have value so our value is is more than anything that any human could possibly pay or or label so if we're here then and then something crumbles over here that is in the world then well you know i'm sorry but that's not really who i am and i and, and 
I'm not going to hold myself to being emotional to that. I'm not going to let myself, you know, flow up and down emotionally with that or, or have that identify me because that's not me. I mean, I'm responsible for that, sure, and I'm going to do what I have to do for that, yes, because God's put a responsibility in my hands to take care of something, but at the same time, I'm not emotionally defined by that. And that's a really hard thing to do. I mean, just imagine a relationship, a husband and wife, and they're, they are codependent. The husband is relying on the, the wife's emotions to define whether he's going to have a good day or not, <laughs> or vice versa. That could go up and down real fast, and it could have nothing to do with what the husband did. But if he's firmly confident in himself, genuinely cares about how she's doing, but his emotions and his self-worth isn't tied in whether she's having a good day or not, then, that, then now she, that she can rely on the fact that he's stable and he can rely on the fact that he's okay and that's not gonna change. Does that make sense? So now let's look at academia and it, it, academia declares that knowledge defines us. How much we know says a lot about us. Man, you hear that in school all the time, don't you? Kids are mean. <laughs> and that doesn't really stop. You go to college, they're still mean. And, and then you go to work, and you, well, how, how come you don't know this? Like, and then all of a sudden you feel terrible about it. You're like, man, I should know that. And knowledge, it, it defines us according to academia. We struggle with the immense pressures of academic success and the drive to be accepted in prestigious colleges. Rather than providing a strong identity, the academic world merely multiplies the pressure, shaping a lifestyle that is unsustainable and unattainable. Just last year, the most popular class on Yale's campus was a class on happiness. One-fourth of the undergraduate student body enrolled in this elective to learn how to build a happy life. The New York Times quoted one freshman as saying, in reality, a lot of us are anxious, stressed, unhappy, numb. The fact that a class like this has such large interest speaks to how tired students are of numbing their emotions so they can focus on their work, the next step, the next accomplishment. The article goes on to describe how today's college students are discovering that good grades, great jobs, material possessions, and all their associated pressures simply do not make us happier. And yet we continually try to get the approval of those people. Like it's, it's crazy what we do to ourselves sometimes. I do that all the time. <laughs> like constantly comparing myself and, and feeling like if I'm not learning something right now that I'm not, I'm not doing anything. Like I'm not, like somehow what I'm doing and, and who's liking what or who's saying, you know, great job here is, is defining whether I'm, I'm headed in the right direction or not, whether I'm doing good or whether I'm even worth anything at this point. And it's really easy to get caught up in that. The next one is society. Society declares that audacity and self-discovery define us. In response to discouraging racial identity narratives, African-American author and activist James Baldwin wrote, in order to survive, to survive this, you have to really dig down into yourself and recreate yourself, really, according to no image which yet exists in America. You have to decide who you are and force the world to deal with you, not with its idea of you. On one hand, I want to shout, yes, defy the oppression of unjust stereotypes. But on the other hand, I want to say, wait, 
Can anyone just decide who they are? And we're going to explore this idea in, in later lessons as well. We can't, if we were constantly trying to define who we are, instead of looking at what the Bible says we are, it, it's an endless road there. Like we're constantly asking that question, who am I, who am I, what am I? Like, and then we're going back to all these little things. Well, okay, I, am, I'm, I have a degree in this and, and I'm working on a degree for this and, and once I get to this job position, then I'm gonna be okay and, and once I know this much, I'm gonna be okay and, and if I can just get five more friends maybe or 500 more likes or whatever it is, like you're, you're constantly looking at, well, okay, well, okay, I'm getting this feedback right now, so maybe I am really good at such and such, and, and that's who I am. And then once that crumbles, now you're searching again, well, maybe I need to, to look at, um, you know, what feedback I'm getting now, and well, unfortunately, you know, social media is constantly changing, what clothes is, is fashionable is constantly changing, oh, there's a new iPhone, there's, there's a new car, there's, there's a better job now that's greener than the one that you're in right now. And it's like, you're constantly, well, okay, now I'm not in the right spot. I need to figure out who I am now and go to that one. And it's just an endless road of, of, of self-discovery. And it's, you're never really going to get a definition from that. The one thing that's unchanging is the Bible. <laughs> like that one, you can constantly go back to and be like, well, this is who God says I am. And, and that you can anchor yourself to. Pop culture says that identity is something we create through beauty, social branding, or realized dreams. Whether it's the movie The Greatest Showman telling us to live in a world we design, or Facebook giving us more than 50 gender options, our world swirls with weak identity narratives, both fictional and non-fictional. Author and theologian David Wells stated it this way, never before have we had more resources and technology to create a fake identity. We have the money and the social media world and we work hard to brand ourselves, to put an image of self out there that isn't real. The sheer number of identity options available to you is overwhelming. You're standing at the edge of a field of a billion rocks and being told that your true self is waiting under just one of them. So where do I begin finding my true self? Where do we find our true self? Let's look at the second part of this, fantasy versus reality. If we look closely and think deeply, these identity messages create more questions than answers. The further we go into it, the harder it's getting. Am I really the key to unlocking my own happiness? Can I really make my dreams come true? Are my aspirations truly my best guide? And does the full burden of finding my happily ever after rest on me alone? What if my dreams and desires change or conflict? They're known to do that, aren't they? And you want to eat healthy, but you also want to eat donuts, and that sounds pretty good. <laughs> How do we force our best selves to materialize? With the limited control we have over life, these would have to be pretty small plans, like I will go to the pantry and eat a Pop-Tart. Like, that's a plan I can, I can fulfill, <laughs> and I might have some control over. I might trip on the way maybe, but maybe I'll still get there. And, but we don't know. Our plans are never guaranteed. But what about the big ones? How do we figure out which combination of billions of options will make our hearts flourish? And the one in a gazillion chance we guess correctly, how would we simply will it into reality? 
It all seems random and overwhelming. And yes, it supposedly determines our happiness and identity for the rest of our lives. The implications are staggering. They're mind-blowing. And we often want to escape it. How often do you, you feel that burnout? You try and try and try and try and try until you have no more try left. And you just have to take a break. <laughs> you just you break down and you have to step back for a while. And maybe you come at it with some more energy again to keep fighting for it. It's easier just to not think about it sometimes and just grab another fistful of cotton candy and watch the fireworks. Go back into a fantasy. I think that's why movies are so exciting and shows are so exciting because you're stepping into another world for a little bit and you're not thinking about your own anymore. Is it chance or fate that causes the real me to emerge? How do we find ourselves in this vast ocean of identity options? Are we doomed to experimentation, educated guesswork, hoping to get it right at some point before we die? Do we have to waste a few decades trying and failing? What if we try relentlessly but can't find that elusive true self? What if we succeed and then lose it all? Worse yet, what if we succeed and success proves unfilling or fragile? What if we finally get there and realize it was worth nothing? It's easy to find people who have everything yet nothing. We've seen that a lot. Many give a lifetime to pursue an idea of themselves that once achieved turns out to be unfulfilling. Yet, it's not hard to find despairing hearts in this world. Many come to believe that life itself just isn't worth living. Ecclesiastes 2.17 says, Therefore I hated life, because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Everything I did was worth nothing. Weak identity structures taunt us to go find yourself messages like giant cosmic bug lights. The beautiful blue intoxicating, or the beautiful blue is intoxicating, but the reality is dangerous. They draw us closer with dazzling promises. The happily ever after messages appeal to our core desires, and yet a world without loving personal God deliver or doesn't deliver a happily ever after. Void of God, there's no happiness there. It doesn't even pretend to provide that for us. The logic is dangerous. Secularism in one moment says, go create your dream. And in another says, you came from nothing, you mean nothing, and you're going towards nothing. That's the zap. The secular narrative touches our hopes, draws us in, and then zaps us into a non-existence. It's illogical and hopeless. So how does all this connect to our identity quest, that we're, we're trying to find who we really are? Whether in college classes, career seminars, motivational talks, or fairy tales, the world repeatedly tells us to look into our hearts, discover our dreams, bravely unlock the potential, and courageously make it all true. It says, seize the day, go out there, and be your best you. But let's face it, something about these words is both true and false. Something resonates with our hearts, and yet something else isn't connecting with the reality that we know. Think of those words, dreams, heart, bravery, courage, and potential. These are noble words that awaken us to something we desire, something we once knew but seem to have lost, like a dream we can't remember. But these words are also uh, scary words. Wait, it's all up to me? If it was all up to me, I, then what's, what's the hope there? Like, it's like our salvation. If, if it was up to me, 
I would never have a chance. Look inside my heart. Well, we know the Bible says our heart is deceitful. If we go by what our heart says, that's going to be a, a very slippery slope. <laughs> Unlock the potential. We've got to be honest here. We are not that smart and not that powerful. We don't have it all figured out. So who are we kidding? The idea of becoming the wrong or becoming the wrong us is terrifying. We don't want to try to do something that is ultimately wrong. So then we don't want to step out. We don't want to try. We don't want to venture out into something new because it's terrifying. The possibility of trying over and over and never actually finding us is just as bad. On one hand, we want to seize life and with courage and adventure. We want to be tough and, and willing to move forward. But on the other hand, we are heavily insured, hoping to be safe from risk and loss. We don't want to go too far. We want to, be, we want to have a net to catch us. The paradox is paralyzing. We're looking for durable identities, the cult, and culture is telling us to seize them, to make them. We're told to be rational and strong, and then we're told that it's random fate or luck, like we have any say at all, but then it says we have say. It's a mixture of truth and deception, strength and weakness, reality and fantasy, but the bait of hopelessness leads us to the trap of deep loss and despair. The world promises but doesn't fulfill. One study has revealed that today's college students and young professionals are the loneliest generation in America. How, what percentage do you think of, of 20 to 30 year old adults wrestle with depression? What do you think it is? That's pretty close, 86% wrestle with depression, loneliness, disappointment, and insecurity related to a quarter life crisis. A period of intense soul searching and stress occurring in your mid 20s to early 30s, typically because you feel you're not achieving your full potential or are falling behind. This crisis is a predictable season when adults realize their years of achievement aren't making them feel fulfilled or happy. They put so much work and then they're like, well, is this actually leading to something? They begin asking, what's the point of it all? And then descend into a general despair and skepticism toward identity messages that culture has forced on them. In his book, The American po uh, Paradox, David G. Myers diagnoses our nagging emptiness and despair in his subtitle, Spiritual Hunger in an Age of Plenty. He documents that our society overflows with material wealth and success and yet experiences deep spiritual poverty. We have more prosperity than ever and yet are more despairing than ever. Hence the rise in mental illness, substance abuse, and suicide, which has decreased or has increased by 3% in America over the past 20 years. And this is largely due to increased numbers of younger Americans taking their own lives. Suicide is now the second leading cause of death for Americans ages 10 to 34. 10 to 34. The second leading cause. That's horrible. Psychologist Gene uh, Twang states, I don't think it's an exaggeration at all to say that we have a mental health crisis among adolescents in the U.S. That should be a pandemic. Something we as a world should be addressing. But obviously the world's not helping, so that would only further that problem. 
We could note the many celebrity lives that edited in suicide, designer Kate Spade, chef Anthony Bourdain, comedian Robin Williams, and the list goes on. University of Chicago professor Alan Bloom diagnoses this generation as one, one whose meaning and purpose for living has been removed, resulting in general despair and disenchantment with the world. Yet this soul emptiness is really nothing new. More than a century ago, successful Russian novelist Leo, Leo Tolstoy entered a despairing time that brought him to the verge of suicide in spite of the fact that he was deemed to be one of the greatest writers of all time, which I've never heard of him, so I guess he wasn't the greatest, but he transparently described the identity questions that haunted him. He wrote, I could give no reasonable meaning to any single action or to my whole life. No matter how often I may be told you cannot understand the meaning of life, so do not think about it, but live, I can no longer do it. My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest questions lying in the soul of every man. It is a question without answering which one cannot live as I had found by experience. It was, what will come of what I'm doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Differently expressed, the question is, why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Tolstoy, like us, couldn't just not think about it. The attractive bait of culture's identity messages when swallowed produces a, lost, or a soul lostness that is unbearable. David Wells described the modern identity search this way, the modern self therefore has been made to bear the weight of being the center of all reality, the source of all our meaning, mystery, and morality. But all of this is asking far more than can realistically be asked. The result is that the self becomes empty and fragile. We need to look more closely at what this messaging really does to our hearts. We need the truth, a strong framework of unchanging reality through which to filter culture, cultures shifting narratives. So what would that be? What can we filter the world through? The Bible. Yes, it's the Bible. <laughs> so that's where we go. We go to what God says. We go to the one who created us, who has a purpose for us, who has a plan for us, who can, who can say, okay, you're doing what I've asked you to do. This is good. You're walking with me. Great. We have a purpose, and this is the goal, and this is where you're going to be in the future. You have a hope to look forward to, and you know what path you're on, and that is where you need to be. And then you're just relying on God constantly, and, and yes, you're going to feel you know, weak sometimes. You're going to feel hopeless or helpless sometimes, but your, your weakness is God's strength. It's an opportunity for him to take you and use you and comfort you. The, you know, he sent the comforter to be with us, the Holy Spirit, and now we have a firm foundation during our walk on the paths that are unstable, in the waters that are shaky, and the storms that are raging. But when we fix our eyes on him, guess what? We are confident and we, are, we have a sense of peace that is unlike any peace the world can offer. And now we can do what he asked us to do, and our identity is unwavering. That's what being in the Bible is like and praying with Jesus is like. So the third point is two fragile identity sources. And this is leading into the next two lessons. 
What should we do with this flawed messaging that is perpetually pressed into our hearts, and what is the alternative? In 1 John 4, the aged disciple of Jesus was writing to much younger Christians, and he challenged them to be on guard, to test the spirits or the voices of our culture. In verse 5, he stated, these anti-God voices are always speaking and being heard. 1 John 4, 5, they are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. And he asserted in the verse before that, verse 4, ye are of God little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You are of God and not of the world. And you've overcome them that are in the world. Because he that's in you, who is Jesus, because God is indwelling in you, He, he's greater, and that is why you are able to overcome the world. And that's why you're his. <laughs> you, you are his. That is a great identity message. Ye are of God. And he's with you, and he loves you. There's so many messages in the Bible. The whole Bible is a love letter saying, hey, I love you. You're mine. I've got you. You don't need to worry. I'll see you through this. I have a plan for you. I have a purpose for you. Earlier in the letter, he said in chapter 2, verse 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, it is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doth the will of God abideth forever. All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, those are all of the world, and those all pass away. All your desires that are tied to the world pass away. They're fleeting. The Apostle John is challenging us to understand the distinction between God's reality and the world's destructive identity substitutes. Take back to the garden when Satan promised something he couldn't. He, I mean, he was basically saying, God doesn't have something good for you because he's keeping you from knowing this stuff. He's keeping you from something. And that was the enticing idea. Well, there's a substitute here. There, there's another option. Well, <laughs> how did that turn out for us? Not so good. God's reality, the distinction between God's reality and the world's destructive identity substitutes. Specifically, what are those substitutes? Modern philosophy, philosophy identifies two primary sources of identity, and these competing identity sources show up in many of our favorite fictional stories. Philosopher Charles Taylor calls these two identities a traditional identity and a modern identity. So that's what we're leading into. So next week, we're going to look at a, a traditional identity and then a modern one. So let's hold on to these terms. And uh, we're going to use this for the rest of the study, traditional and modern. So what is a traditional identity and how is it fragile? 
and what is a modern identity and how is it fraudulent? So to close out, uh, the road forks at this point in the study. We could obviously deep dive into philosophy, which I don't think any of us have time for that, uh, or would stay awake for that. Uh, but uh, I think it's, it's easier to, or we'd rather learn the same things from stories we're all familiar with, especially those from childhood. So would you believe that some of our favorite Pixar or Disney movies actually might teach us modern philosophy? I wouldn't use that as the, the absolute, but they do have some good life lessons. Uh, so from here, this is an intersection of philosophy and familiar stories on our journey towards an ultimate truth. And then we can consider how these stories can help us think more deeply about the two fake identity, identity processes. In lesson four, we're gonna continue our study traditional identity. And then in lesson five, we will look at modern identity. And I think Jesse is going to combine those two, but uh, it is a, a fluid lesson. 1 John 4.1 says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. There's a lot of messages coming our way. We have to try it against the word of God to help us rightly divide the truth to discern what is being fed us and whether it's good for us. How many of you would be willing to be blindfolded and then fed something? <laughs> you want to know what you're about to eat. You definitely want to know what's going to be good for you. Sometimes. But at least not poisonous, right? Like you, you want to know you're going to survive whatever's coming at you. So why would we do that with why would we let the truths of the world do that for us? Why would we blindly let stuff in and not divide it by the word of God? Why wouldn't we have our eyes open by what God says it is and look at it in that perspective? That would definitely help me trust a decision or, or what's coming at me a little better. Like, okay, well, no, that's not good. Okay, that's good. Yep, I'm going to take that. I like what that says because that's what God says. I'll, I'll go with what God said. That, that sounds healthy. Um, do we have any comments or questions before we? Yeah, Ron. Are we still? Yeah. So for those that, for those that didn't hear, Ron was saying, you know, for his entire life, other than his salvation being tied in the fact that it has nothing to do with him, that's all to do with Jesus. His confidence is in the fact that God is always constant. It's unwavering. And it had, has nothing to do with what Ron Allen does. It has nothing to do with what Atreyu does. Like it's, it's okay for us to not be good enough because God's good enough. Yeah. 
Anything else before we close? All right, well, we'll meet back at 11 uh, for our worship service and singing and praising God and learning more about what he says about how he loves us and who we are. So, all right, thank you guys.